Today we'll be going through 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the last part of chapter 2. We always cover the material that the church encourages us to do so, and so we're going to be following along in that regard. And then we always have some material at the end, and the big question today, Ask Kirby surfaces from this session where we have some comments about Satan. And as we pointed out just a couple of weeks ago in a survey, that the younger you are, the less likely you are to believe in Satan or spiritual warfare. So I'm going to take a few things from my book on spiritual warfare, which we make available, by the way, if you are a visitor. It's one of those books that we have available up there. And so that is how we will move through some of the material here today. And so, again, you can go to the website right now, PrestonwoodExamine.org, or later, if you would like to find some of that material, again, it is already there as a PDF. Also, we will add to it the audio, and, of course, we certainly welcome those people online listening as well. And so we're going to focus our time and attention today on the latter part of Chapter 2 in First Thessalonians. Uh, the theme is pretty simple, and that is we have been talking about what was happening in Thessalonica. The Apostle Paul had been there, but only for three Sabbaths. So he'd only been there for three weeks. And so you have this letter, probably different than any other letter by the Apostle Paul, in which he spends really essentially what we, using our description, become almost three chapters of thanksgiving. And so this is to, first of all, tell them why he's so thankful for them, also to encourage them as they are starting to face some kind of persecution. And then as they have seen some people die, they're wondering, well, you said Jesus is returning. And so that brings us into one of the chapters we're going to look at in a couple of weeks in terms of prophecy and the rapture and a variety of others. So we've got lots of things to cover, but it breaks down pretty simple in uh, looking at, uh, first of all, First Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 13 and following. And here we see that, again, the Apostle Paul says, We also thank God constantly for this. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what is really the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, become imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You suffered the same things from our own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath come upon them at last." And so here, first again, we see this whole emphasis again upon thanksgiving. He's thankful in a very long narrative that takes place. And we'll see that this thanksgiving eventually concludes and then he begins to focus on, as we will begin to look at next week, the fact that he had sent Timothy and Sylvanius to actually then see what was happening in this church that he had planted, a fledgling church. And here we see all of this uh, coming together. Again, he writes about some of the unusual circumstances of their conversions. As I pointed out just a minute ago, uh, he had been in Thessalonica for basically three Sabbaths, or about three weeks, and then he was driven out of that town. 
And so that's why I think you see him spending probably more time than normal on some of these narratives about his great love for them, because he didn't have really an opportunity to demonstrate that with them. I mean, when he writes to Ephesus, he has spent a long time with them. Just imagine if you meet somebody and you say, well, I love you, you almost have to show it in a more significant way, and that is the case. And here again, he is thankful for the fact that they actually accepted this as the word of God, not of the word of men. And then he encourages them uh, in the midst of this because he's now talking about the fact that there was, if you will, persecution coming from the Jews. Now, there's always been a mistake that some people have made in saying when he says the Jews, he means all Jewish people. Uh, what I put up there is pretty obvious. The individuals that are writing this are Jewish themselves. The original disciples, most of the prophets were Jews. So he's not talking about all Jewish race. What he's talking about is those Jewish leaders which are described also in John's gospel as those who at that time challenged Jesus and eventually killed him. Now, when he's talking about these Jews, these are the Jews that are attacking the believers, this very small church that is now beginning to develop there in Thessalonica. And so that's really the focus of what he has to say there as well. He then goes on to remind them that in some respects, if you're being persecuted, really you're in good company. That sort of happens that way. Uh, Jesus was persecuted. The prophets were persecuted. Now the apostles and other believers are persecuted. So in some respects, you should expect it in many cases, especially in that hostile culture. And so I put down, if you're taking some notes, uh, one of the things that Jesus says relatively early on in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And so I thought I might put a couple of verses up here that remind us of that. Uh, we, again, are so fortunate as believers in this country not to face persecution, at least with a capital P, as believers in other countries are. But we still face persecution maybe with a, a small cap P, and that is the case. And here's some other verses that if you wanted to write them down, maybe look at those or use those to encourage others. Because Jesus, as I also mentioned, not only in Matthew chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, but later on in Matthew chapter 10. I wanted to put that one up there since we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew more recently, in which Jesus promised, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So there's the great hope that we see. If you think about this, all the old New Testament writers at one way or another talked about this. Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy talks about all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if you want to find some other verses, you see in the Gospel of John, you see this in the book of Acts. You also see this in the letter that Peter writes to those who were persecuted. And we see perhaps one of the most uh, disturbing statements that after the apostles were whipped or flogged, it says in Acts 5, verse 41, that they were rejoicing, that they counted themselves worthy to suffer dishonor for our name. 
for the name of Jesus, basically. And so, again, you see so many examples of persecution. And here, as Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, he is reminding them that, yes, you are facing persecution. I want to give you hope. I want to give you encouragement. But at the same time, I also want you to understand you're really in good company. They persecuted Jesus. They persecuted the apostles. In the past, they persecuted the um, various prophets. And they persecute you as well. So that's the first part about this. Verses 17 and following now, we see the rest of the chapter in which we see now verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And I'm going to spend more time talking about Satan, because the word there would also be the adversary. But first of all, he talks about, again, this great love and affection he has for them. They're his spiritual children. So just as a father or mother loves their children, so also here now is his spiritual children. He'd only been there for a few weeks. Again, I give you the reference there in Acts 17, where it actually says that they were run out of town by a violent mob. It's amazing. Wherever Paul shows up. Within three weeks, he's created so much controversy that he's chased out of town by a violent mob. And he says here, we were torn away from you. I mean, you can kind of sense the pain that he's facing and feeling right now because he wanted to really build into them, minister to them, disciple them. And instead, he finds himself torn away by this violent mob that takes place. So in some respects, he uses that as like children, just as his children may be that uh, you lose them or they become estranged from you. uh, So you have that same kind of idea. And the tone is very similar to what we saw last week when we talked about that in chapter two, about talking about being the father or mother of the Thessalonians. And it says now he's trying to come to them. He wants to come back to them, but he is actually hindered by what? The adversary is probably the better way to translate that. So not only he wanted uh, to see them and love them, uh, but he also felt responsible for them. And yet he is being prohibited from doing so. And here, the English Standard Version, ESV, refers to it as Satan. But the word literally is adversary. And in a few minutes, I'm going to do kind of an Ask Kirby where we're going to talk about the various names for Satan. And one of the reasons we're going to do that is, as we have found in our survey, the younger you are, the less likely you are to believe in Satan or demons. And so here the word is adversary, which is actually used like as a proper noun, also the name we call the devil or Satan. And he's our adversary. Satan is our enemy. And his prime objective, one of the things we're going to look at in just a minute, is to hinder us from doing God's work. Either through temptation, which we're going to see next week, that will be 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, or through a spiritual attack, which we see here in 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. But in both cases, we see different aspects of how Satan was affecting them in Thessalonica, how they were affecting Paul. But then I want to bring it down to us. How is it affecting you today in terms of spiritual warfare? So whatever it was, he was being prevented from returning to Thessalonica. And he recognized that it wasn't just a physical obstacle. 
it was also a spiritual challenge and adversary as well. So I think it's interesting to see that he describes that only so well. If you're taking some notes, and I know some of you are great note-takers here, I think it fits very well into the whole idea of spiritual warfare, because in Ephesians 6, verse 12, it says, For we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but instead we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, we can fall into all sorts of extremes, one in which we see everything as satanic, or one in which we ignore that there are spiritual dimension. And I want to try to talk about that in just a minute. But here you can see that it wasn't his lack of interest, wasn't lack of concern, wasn't his inability to walk back to Thessalonica that was keeping him there. Uh, there was something else, and it was spiritual warfare. And so he wanted to know, them to know that just because I was with you for three weeks and I haven't come back, I haven't abandoned you. If anything, I've been trying to come back to you, but there have been forces preventing me from doing so, and that is the case. So even though they were not there, he also wanted to let them know that even though I'm not here with you physically, I'm there with you in my heart. And in some respects, we have to see that because there are people that we will be separated from. Even today, we heard uh, the outreach that this church has on almost every continent in the world. And we uh, share within this universal body of Christ the opportunity that across geographical time, even across the world, even across generations of history, we're all part of this larger body of Jesus Christ. So no matter how much Satan blocked them from physically seeing them, they could not, he could not break the bond that they have in Jesus Christ. And so we see that is the case. Another example of the idea of the body of Christ, I want to put a couple of those verses up there. First of all, we see in Romans 12, we have that idea of us all being part of this body of Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12, that there are different gifts and different ministries, but we're all part of one body. So there's a lot of emphasis in the New Testament, especially by the Apostle Paul, in terms of being part of one body. We also see that in one place where Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, he talks about how we are what? Knit together in love. And so just as children will always be part of their parents, there's never a time where you won't have a father and mother, never be a time where you won't be a child of someone else. So also here, Paul recognizes that even here, like sometimes children grow up and leave the home, they're always still the children. He has these spiritual children there in Thessalonica. And so he'll always support and pray for them, no matter how far apart they are from each other physically. And then in the last few verses here, we start in verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And so here the focus is on the fact that also for a pastor, or in this case for Paul, those individuals that are spiritual children are your glory and joy. And this is what he says is even like this idea of a crown of boasting. Uh, he again uses this illustration. Just as a parent, 
would be proud of a child that has achieved something, so also we would rejoice for our children. Also, Paul has high hopes for them as his spiritual children as a way that ultimately, even as he passed the gospel to the next generation, they would then pass it on to others. And that's ultimately the hope that we have as we begin to see the spiritual message go from one generation to the next generation and begin to go from one part of Asia Minor to the rest of the world. So again, those were his joy. What he's saying there is he's thankful for them. He's thankful for their faithfulness. Uh, Last week we heard him talk about the fact that how, in some respects, he could boast about them. And even their testimony of faithfulness was now being spread through Achaia and Macedonia. He says that it's the greatest joy, I think, of seeing your spiritual children walk with Jesus. This also applies to spiritual children, you know, that we might have as well. And not only is it uh, something that we can be proud for, it's not an ungodly proud, but it's instead, it's a joy in seeing the gospel go forth as we lead others to the Lord and we see them grow in the faith. And so finally, he says, not only are they the joy, but also that they are the crown or prize. Now, the word there was one that was used in the Greek games from which we get today even the idea of the Olympic Games. That was a wreath that was placed on an individual. That was your crown for that achievement. And so just as he told the church in Corinth that he saw it as his job to present them as a pure bride to Christ at the wedding feast of the Lamb, so also here was the idea of this would be the celebration the ultimate celebration in heaven and then on earth. He also told the Philippians that they were to keep themselves blameless and innocent so that he could take pride in them on the day of Christ, which again is looking to the future. When we get into chapter 4, we're going to talk about that because that will get us into prophecy and those kinds of things. But here he's talking about the fact that he's poured his life into them and they were his pride and joy. So that finishes off chapter 2. Next week we'll get into chapter 3 and we'll see another aspect of this. But I thought that in the time that we have remaining, uh, one of the questions that has surfaced in some of our surveys. Ten years ago we did a survey just of the born-again millennials. And the more recent survey, we did over a thousand, thousands and thousands, more than 3,000 individuals. We found that the younger you are, the less likely you are to believe that Satan is a real person. Very interesting. Now, C.S. Lewis tells us that when we look at these issues of spiritual warfare, there are two extremes. One where you see everything as satanic, and another extreme where you see nothing as satanic. Let's look at this example. Does anybody remember the comedian Flip Wilson? Remember Flip Wilson? Yeah. What was the line there? (laughs) The devil made me do it, right? You know, so again, Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Now, actually, he was sort of making fun of it, so he's actually the other extreme. But, you know, you have seen ideas that you have with some of our Christian brethren. When in doubt, cast it out. You know, everything's satanic and everything's blamed on Satan. And, you know, there is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Next week, we're going to talk about Satan not as an adversary, but Satan as a tempter. And so we're going to talk about temptation. How do we address temptation? 
satanic temptation, but then there's all temptation from the world and the flesh. So we're going to do that next week. But here you can see that some things certainly could be satanic. And here you see Paul actually saying that this adversary, Satan, is keeping him from getting there. But at the same time, we don't want to go to the other extreme where we ignore all of that. There is a tendency for us, especially in America, we don't see so much demon possession. I do have a chapter in here on demon possession, but we don't see that. Uh, come with us to Haiti right now. Haiti's been in the news, hasn't it been? If you've been watching what's been going on in Del Rio. Uh, but we have a number of professors at Dallas Seminary over the years that go down to Haiti. And they can tell you some stories that will give you nightmares. We're not going to get into that today, by the way. But some just incredible stories there. So you don't want to be on one side or the other. Okay, so let's think about just for a few minutes, because this is going to be kind of um, Dallas Seminary, systematic theology, demonology in just a few minutes. And I'll go through it fairly quickly, because again, I don't want to give you nightmares, but I do want to cover that. So, first of all, when we think about Satan, the Bible gives us some very clear direction. It gives us three different titles that are used for Satan. And you might want to write this down just in thinking about how you would explain this to someone else. Because I am doing this in part because I recognize that if you are going to disciple or minister to the younger generation, there's just been a, I don't believe in Satan. And yet, if you believe in the Bible, you better believe in Satan, right? And the Bible gives us some very clear titles. The first of one, which I put up here, is Satan is described as the ruler of the world. We see that primarily in the Gospel of John. What it means is, I think, that Satan can use the elements of society, of culture, even government, to achieve his evil ends. But again, we don't want to overplay that. That doesn't mean that he has control over every aspect of society. There may be some things that you've heard the government or the culture do that you say, boy, that is really satanic, and it may be, but it doesn't mean he has complete control, but it does mean that he has an influence, because again, it is very clear that Jesus refers to Satan as a ruler of the world. By the way, it's amazing how many people say, I believe in Jesus, and I really accept what Jesus has to say, but I don't believe in Satan. Did Jesus believe in Satan? Yes, okay, that's, that's good enough for me. I'm a C.C. Winans kind, you know. God says that that's all I need to know, you know, and there it is. And Jesus says that's enough. Okay, ruler of the world. Second, he's also referred to not only as the ruler of the world, but what the God of the world. Now, this one comes from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. We're going to come back to what that means in just a minute, because what actually Paul is explaining there is the trouble with evangelism. Because in the context, he's really talking about the fact that when you share the gospel, people's minds and eyes seem blinded. And he argues that they're blinded by the king and the God of this world. And so you have probably, if you've ever been involved in any kind of evangelism, you share the gospel. Maybe you have a tract. Maybe you give them the Roman road. Maybe you just share your own testimony. And you might as well just be talking to the wall because they just can't even figure out what you're doing. They just seem totally blind. And I think the explanation for that we see in Second Corinthians, the blinding of this world. Uh, Pastor Graham's already got into that a little bit, and he talks about that in his book. And by the way, I'm going to recommend his book in just a minute as well, in terms of when we look at the blindness of our Jewish believers, 
You know, if you've ever tried to share your gospel, share the gospel with Jewish people, I mean, it is the toughest evangelistic world that you can run into. And I've shared with you before that Jews for Jesus every single year leads more Gentiles to the Lord than they lead Jews to the Lord. That just shows you what a tough witnessing that is. And so, again, I think some of that is spiritual blindness, which we see in also the gospel uh, accounts. We see it in Second Corinthians. We also see it in the book of Romans. And again, it's the idea that he has power over kind of the religious world. And I do believe that some of these false religions show the fingerprints of Satan. So, first of all, the ruler of the world, the God of the world, the last one, prince of the air. You see, that is Paul is talking about this idea of spiritual warfare, and he mentions this in Ephesians 2. We get into it in more detail in Ephesians 6. But it's the idea that Satan controls kind of the thoughts of those people in this world system. Sometimes you just say again, I I just seem when I'm talking to people, I'm like, they just don't seem to get it. I'm trying to say, don't you see this out here? I'm sure you've all had this experience more recently, just having conversations about politics, religion, culture. And you go, people just don't see it because the world system is really set up against God's word. And as a matter of fact, John, as he is writing his letter in 1 John 5.19, talks about the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. One of the reasons why we sometimes talk about the fact that there's evil in the world because of the fallenness that we read about today in Romans chapter 8, that the earth groans in travail. We just heard Pastor Graham talk about that. And so that's why we find ourselves sometimes in the midst of spiritual warfare. Well, let's come back to this one, because actually the best translation would say that, that where we see the word uh, Satan, it probably would be best translated adversary. And Satan in the Hebrew means adversary, and it's the idea that Satan is opposed to God's plans. Satan is opposed to God. He's also opposed to you trying to enact God's plan. In the Old Testament, that shows up 18 times. In the New Testament, look at that. It shows up 34 times. And here's one of the passages here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, or verse 18, excuse me. And then you also have, when we hear the word devil, that comes from the New Testament Greek word diabolos, which is probably as easily translated to throw. Now, how does that relate to Satan? Well, it's the idea of throwing accusations at individuals, throwing accusations at you, throwing lies at you. And uh, this week uh, we had an opportunity to spend a little bit of time talking with Michael Perrin about mental issues on the radio. And uh, one of the things you see is people sometimes are just struggling because they have accepted Satan's lies and accusations. And this definition or this word of uh, Satan shows up another 36 times in the New Testament. Again, for people to say, I don't believe in Satan. Let's see. Jesus believes in Satan. Paul believes in Satan. Peter believes in Satan. I mean, every New Testament writer, John, believes in Satan. I I think it's pretty, pretty much of a slam dunk when you look at it in that regard. But next week, and I'm just going to mention this, we're going to come into another passage because in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, it now talks about the tempter. So first of all, Paul is talking about how Satan is an adversary. Next week, we'll talk about how Satan is a tempter. And we see the best example of that, of course, in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus goes into the wilderness and what happens? 
on three separate occasions, is tempted by Satan. So we'll get into what those kinds of temptations would be in our lives, but I'll talk about that next week. But you can see where, again, if you're taking some notes, 1 Thessalonians 3.5 talks about the tempter, about the idea that Satan is tempting people to sin. And so this week we're looking at adversary. Next week we'll look at tempter to see how that fits together. But again, the question that most people have is, okay, you've convinced me maybe Satan does exist. Well, how powerful is he? Well, the Bible gives us some indication of that as well. And it's a long list, but I put most of them on one page here. And that is, first of all, we just looked at this a minute ago, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan can affect people's minds. How much? Well, we can have a little bit of debate about that, but certainly... Paul tells us that Satan can blind the minds of unbelievers. So even sometimes when we pray and we share the gospel, we seem to be up against a wall. There have been some times when I've been witnessing to someone and as they're talking back and they're telling me why they don't believe or something like that, I'm quiet. The reason I'm quiet is I'm just saying, Father, just open this individual's eyes. You know, have the scales fall out of their eyes um, because my words aren't doing anything, but maybe your conviction will because they are blind to spiritual truth. If you look at Acts chapter 5, we also see that Satan apparently can influence people's thoughts with temptations. I'll come back to that next week when we talk about temptations a little bit more. This one um, is, I think, a little bit interesting, that Satan can give us nightmares. Ever had a nightmare and you wonder, where in the world did this come from? Well, Job 4 seems to indicate the possibility of that. I'm not saying that that is going to affect us, uh, but it certainly seems to have happened in that day. And also Satan can give people emotional trauma because when we look at when Saul starts going off the deep end in 1 Samuel 16, it is blamed on Satan. So certainly there is some impact that Satan could have on a person's mind. Then, of course, we've already illustrated this. Satan can certainly hinder us. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 18 in Paul. Or... Sometimes God can bring, or Satan, excuse me, can bring people into our lives to hinder us and we have to pray that God would prevent those people that are physically hindering us. Recognize we're not warring against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual darkness. And Hebrews 2 seems to indicate that Satan might have even power over death. So let's not underestimate the power of Satan but also recognize that greater is he who is what? In you than he who is in the world. And we'll come back to that more next week because I want to give some ideas there. But some people say, well, Satan's only one person. How much can Satan do? Well, he was the archangel. He was pretty powerful. But you know what? He's got some what are called emissaries as well. And those are demons. Now, the question I get so often is, well, demons seem to show up a lot in the New Testament, but we don't see them in the Old Testament. Wrong. Uh, There are fewer references to demons in the Old Testament, but I think they were active, but there was just less reason to identify that they were there. But let me just give you a couple of examples here. First of all, it talks about in Deuteronomy, uh, those who were sacrificed to demons, Psalm picks up that as well, sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. What was that? That was child sacrifice, right? 
Do we have that today? Some people say, yes, we do, with abortion. But they would sacrifice these to the demons. So there certainly are some references to demons in the Old Testament, but I would recognize there aren't as many. And there does seem to be some evidence that you could argue that demonic activity intensified greatly uh, in the first century. Why might that be? Maybe because... God and the person of Jesus Christ shows up and you have an enormous number of lists of demonic activity. I use most of those from the book of Matthew because we've just studied book of Matthew, but I'll give you a few from Luke and others. You have, of course, the demon possessed man um, in Matthew chapter 12. You have in Mark and Luke a man who is in the synagogue who is demon possessed. You have the casting out of demons from two Men into the swine. Remember what happens? They go off the cliff. Um, if you travel to Israel, as we oftentimes are going to Caesarea Philippi, they'll say, well, that's probably the cliff where they go over because that was on the Decapolis side on what essentially would be the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So we kind of know where that took place. Of course, we have the healing of the daughter um, that was demon-possessed. You have the casting out of a demon that disciples could not. Remember this, where the disciples go out and try to cast out the demons? And come back and say, okay, we didn't do so well. And Jesus does that. And then you have the casting out of seven demons for Mary Magdalene. You know, I love the chosen, but I wish it was a little more dramatic, you know, because Jesus just comes up and touches her like this. And this, I suspect, was seven demons in Mary Magdalene probably was a little more intense than you see in the chosen. But nevertheless, that's in Luke 8. And then we have another woman who had a sickness for 18 years, and that was caused by a spirit. So you can see there, again, is a difficulty for anybody to say, wait a minute, I don't really believe in demons. Well, Jesus certainly did, and he confronted a lot of those indeed. And so we see that in the Gospels. But again, you might say, okay, we've talked about what could Satan do? What can demons do? Well, we have a couple of things. First of all, demons can talk, apparently, because Jesus converses with demons on a, a number of occasions. We see that in Matthew 8. We see that in Mark 9. Demons show emotion. Yeah, I think we could see that one pretty easily as well. Demons seem to have some kind of worldview and belief system. These are, after all, fallen angels. Um, demons might be able, in that same passage, to be able to convince us that there are certain things to avoid. Or maybe, even if you think about this, going all the way back to uh, one of the fallen angels, that would be Satan, convincing Adam and Eve uh, to actually pursue things that God told them to avoid. And then finally, they try as much as possible to turn people away from the message of the pure gospel, which would then kind of bring us back to, well, okay, what do demons actually know? Well, first of all, they knew who Jesus was. You know, there's never a, who are you? You find out later in the book of Acts where somebody tries to cast out a demon, they go, really, who are you? But they know who Jesus is. They figured that one out pretty quickly. It seems, I think you can interpret this, that they must know some biblical doctrine because they're effective enough at corrupting that doctrine. Now, again, if they were angels in the presence of God and now fallen angels, you would assume that they do know of the idea of biblical doctrines. They must know something about salvation because they also are working to try to keep people from trusting in Christ. We see that in 1 John. 
we can see sometimes they are very strong and virtually almost uncontrollable. We see that in one of the Gospels, Mark. We see that in the book of Acts. And also, they can cause people to worship idols. I think a lot of idolatry today goes back to the influence of demons. So, that may be more than you want to know about demons and Satan, but uh, this is one of the things I wanted to pass on to you, because I suspect that as you are sharing the gospel with other individuals, maybe as you are discipling individuals, you're probably going to run into more and more people that say, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in Satan. I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in demons. I think I've given you some great material. And you might say, I haven't memorized all that. That's fine. It's on the website, right? PrestonwoodExamine.org. When you get yourself into a situation, uh, just go on the website or just go on your smartphone. You can pull all that up and say, here are the arguments for it. But if you wanted to read some books, well, one of the books we're going to have up here is the one on spiritual warfare. But again, I would without a doubt recommend a very good book that Jack Graham has written called Unseen, What You Need to Know About Angels, Demons, Heaven, and Hell. These are important issues in these latter days in which you're going to have more and more people influenced by Satan influenced by demonic activity, living in an evil world, but nevertheless chalking all of that up to just circumstances. And I think we're going to have to recognize that just as there was a rise in demonic activity when Jesus came, I suspect there might be a rise of demonic activity as we get closer and closer to Jesus' return. So I wanted to equip you with that and uh, give you a thumbnail sketch on what sometimes we take almost an entire semester to talk about at Dallas Theological Seminary. But with that, let's turn it back over to Parker.